Hello, final boys and girls. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer, and I am the final girl on 6th Avenue. Thank you so much for joining me back today. Um, I did take a week off last week. I hope all of you did. Um, I've been looking forward to getting this episode wrapped up for you guys because it's one of my favorite movies. Um, And yeah, I just want to take a second to appreciate the fact that nobody bothered me on my week off. So thank you so much. Just a reminder that this show is brought to you by the Morbidly Beautiful Network. You can check out the Morbidly Beautiful Network podcasts and blogs and other content just like mine and some even better than mine, um, in my opinion, at morbidlybeautiful.com. So make sure to check it out. If you haven't already, please give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Please tell your friends, family, and others. I am really trying to get to 100 subscribers by the end of the year, and I am at about 50 right now, um, roughly. So if you could help me out in doing that, that would be greatly, greatly, greatly appreciated. And yeah, let's just jump right in. I don't think we need to waste any more time. So we are talking about the house that Jack built. This is going to be our part two episode. And when we last left Jack, he was well on his way to making Verge hate his guts. Things are not necessarily going to get better or worse from here, but it does get more chaotic, so just trust me and stay with me. Jack goes on to another explanation about how he knows nothing about the decay of humans, but knows a lot about dessert wines. He discusses the process of grape decay via frost, dehydration, and the noble rot, which is a type of fungus. He discusses that these processes are the ones that cause the grapes to become wine, or part of higher artwork. He tells Verge that his house was built and torn down three more times, embarrassingly. I don't think I've ever seen a better example of a dissatisfied homeowner than Jack. He literally cannot, if his life depended on it, could not build a house that satisfied his needs. Um, Even though I thought they were all really cool looking, but I guess I'm not an architect. So maybe I don't have an eye for it. Maybe Jack can help me with that. So Jack taunts Verge by asking him if he had written the E-need for it to be destroyed after Jack tells him that, of course, he didn't build his house just to have it destroyed. Nobody does that. But he does say that he merely wanted to make it perfect and he could just see the value in demolition and having work be destroyed as a mechanism of artistic expression. He goes on to discuss the theory of ruin value in which certain buildings throughout time were built with a combination of stronger and weaker materials so that in the future, they may look like the quote-unquote perfect aesthetic ruin. This was coined by Albert Speer, who was a Nazi and studied the works of Greeks and Romans and built Nazi buildings that were completely destroyed just years after their constructions. Jack goes on to discuss the stuka, which he coins as being the most beautiful plane to ever be built. He makes certain to point out that the planes made a very distinct sound by having a siren attached to the bottom of the undercarriage of the plane. It was deliberately placed there as an intentional act of war so that no one that ever heard that sound in war would ever forget it. The siren became known as Jericho's trumpet. He tells Verge he considers it beyond a masterpiece, but more so as an icon. The creators of the planes were creators of icon. He explains that icons are deemed the ultimate evil, creators of extravagant art, all while showing photos and videos of Mussolini, Hitler, Pol Pot, 
dead bodies in concentration camps, kids being thrown off the side of a mountain. You get the imagery that we're going for. Verge stops him after he makes comments about the bodies and masses being the personification of the noble rot and makes comment about his formative views on art and love using the Buchenwald concentration camp as a proxy. He talks about the tree at the center of the camp, a massive oak tree, which is the one that Goethe sat under when he wrote and speculated on some of life's most important work. It is a crazy juxtaposition to have such an amazing and important tree in the middle of a concentration camp where such atrocities occurred. Jack bounces off of this to say that sometimes our soul is the reason and our bodies are all of the dangerous things like art and icons. I would like to point out that all of this is being discussed while there are clips shown of Von Trier's other movies. He literally took the opportunity to make a movie and insert clips of his own other movies in the fucking movie. What a prick. But Jack now shows us his final incident, which is number five. He goes to a gun store and buys some ammunition, showing us that he took Simple's other breast and is using it as a wallet. Cut now to Jack getting a man to handcuff himself at Jack's gunpoint in the back of his van and being forced into the deep freezer. There are already five other men in there. All of them are on their knees with their chins resting on a long metal bar. Hands are tied behind their backs. They are basically in a kneeling position with their heads forward and all of their heads are in a line, a perfect line on this metal bar. So they're freezing, obviously. They comment on how cold they are and Jack basically taunts them like, oh, you're so cold. Okay, well, I'm sure it was really cold in there. Like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, I wouldn't like to sit in there. I don't know how long they were in there, but it was probably a little too long. So he covers them up with those, like, um, flame blankets, the ones that you throw on people when they're on fire. He explains to the men that in the Second World War, the Germans had little ammunition and needed to carry out mass killings. So... They experimented with the idea of precisely what Jack has set up now. To accomplish this, they must use a completely metal jacket bullet. Jack already has his sights lined up to fire, but the man in the front, the most recent kidnapping victim, tells Jack that there must have been some misunderstanding about the ammunition because what Jack is holding is actually not a full metal jacket bullet. Jack goes back to the ammunition store to confront Al about the ammo, screaming that it must be too much to ask for the label on the box to match the contents. Al tells Jack that he's correct and the contents do not seem to match the label, but Jack cannot prove that he bought the ammo in the store. He didn't bring a receipt. Jack tells him that he's been coming to the store for almost 20 years, roughly every two weeks. There's no reason for Al to not believe that Jack bought the ammo there. He doesn't go anywhere else. He also says he's never been given a receipt before. So now that Al is asking for one, he has no way of producing one because he's never gotten one. He tells Al that never before has he been asked to show ID to buy anything because Al is obviously scared. So he's trying to like make a way to not sell this bullet to Jack. He doesn't want to. So he says, if you can't just give me the box, without me showing you my ID. I just want to buy one single round. 
Okay, Al is obviously freaked out. He asks why Jack would need one single round because I think that's a very valid question. And Jack freaks out and yells about how he's just going to go somewhere else to get it. Al immediately reacts, almost crying, in tears, shaken up, calls someone on the phone. So Jack drives off angry and heads over to Al and SP's RV, which I think SP is Al's dad. I'm not entirely sure what that relationship is. But he goes over to SP and asks him for the bullets. SP greets him with a gun and says that the police were just there yesterday asking questions about Jack. SP explains that it's over and that him and Al know all about some robbery that Jack seems to not know anything about. At gunpoint, SP gets Jack to sit in the chair and calls the cops to come and get him. He tells SP that he's so thankful that he's the one that caught him because he needed to be stopped from committing further robberies. So he went from not knowing anything about a robbery to being like, oh, you're right, I've been committing too many robberies. I needed somebody to stop me. The audience can see that Jack has a knife under a table in the living room that he's sitting next to. So he's like in an armchair. There's a side table right next to him, and he was able to get the knife presumably out of his sock and is holding it under the table. He tells SP some memories about how he was looking for a deer once and couldn't track it down, so SP helped him, and now SP, feeling heartfelt, tells Jack that he knows him and puts it on his weapon, saying, I know you've never tried to lie to me before. So he get, like basically puts his guard down, which he should know better. He draws with the gun off the table just to show Jack how fast he is and assures him that he would never make it to the door. SP pours some shots for him, and Jack of some whiskey, and he shakes SP's hand. As soon as he does this, he stands up and drives that knife right through SP's chin and face. He then goes and grabs the ammo he was looking for from the back room of the RV, and a police officer enters the trailer to find Jack wearing SP's robe, face turned away. The cop says, oh man, SP, you got him. And as soon as he puts his weapon away, thinking that SP killed Jack, Jack turns around to draw and shoots the officer. He drives away in the cop car with the siren on. He drives back to the freezer, gets the military man to agree that the cartridge is what he's looking for. He loads his ammo and gets ready, but he claims that the gun is too close and his sight cannot focus. So he finally is able to get the door open of the room in the freezer that he was never able to open before. He tapes the floor to show where to set everything up, And another police officer shows up to find the cop car that Jack stole sitting adjacent next to the freezer with the siren still on, with the door adjacent, like, or ajar. Like, he's just, this man, like, I don't understand. He just wanted to be caught. So as Jack perfectly lines his sights, he hears someone call his name. It is Verge, sitting in an empty room that he was never able to open before, in a metal chair. Verge introduces himself to Jack and says that it is Jack who called him the way he sees it anyway. He says that he has been with Jack for a while, but Jack just never noticed. We then see a series of photos of Jack's prior victims where Verge is in the background of all of them. He tells Jack that he's not there to stop him from doing anything, really, but just had one question. He wants to know what is going on with Jack's house. As we see the house in its current form, nothing but a simple structure... We hear the police calling to Jack to come out with his hands above his head. 
Verge tells Jack he was made aware that Jack has some interesting theories about the materials of the house and encourages him to let the materials do the work, since they have their own will. Jack then proceeds to take the bodies that have been frozen and decaying and builds a small house frame in the fucking freezer with these bodies, just as police are soldering the metal door open. Verge walks into the house opening. He basically made like a makeshift door and asks Jack to come with him. The police start to fire and Jack follows Verge. Now, the epilogue. Because why would it be over, you know? Jack is standing in about six inches of water. He asks Verge if they're allowed to speak along the way, having the same exchange as they had in the very beginning of the movie. We cut to Jack and Verge falling through blue water slowly and reappearing to us in small protective orbs of light into the world that they are in. Jack follows Verge through a series of underground tunnels and caves, all while half swimming, half walking. Jack asks what the loud buzzing sound he is hearing. Verge tells him he doesn't want to know exactly where it's coming from, but Jack insists that he must know everything. So Verge explains to Jack that the sound is actually a combination of all the accumulated screams and wails that people often associate in hell, and that all of those sounds combined actually make a buzzing sound. He says that the people that have been trying to localize hell for centuries were always listening to the wrong things. Jack and Verge have to scale down a series of walls, one that is a rock waterfall and one that looks like black tree roots intertwined, but this time he actually gets a ladder. He tells Verge that he doesn't feel so good and that there's a sour taste in his mouth. They walk through a room where the walls are simply dripping blood. They sit together on the boat, crossing the River Styx. It's literally a recreation of the River Styx painting, so I'm not, not making that one up for you. Eventually, they arrive in a cavernous room with a glass window, showing what looks like sunlight. Outside the window, Jack can see the men with the scythes and the Elysian field. Verge says that they do not have access from where they are, and Jack begins to cry. Finally, in the last room, a giant cave with skulls and bones and broken railings and the loudest buzzing so far, Verge points down for Jack to look and see the running molten lava. He says that this is the deepest deep that hell goes. And he took Jack down there just to show him what it looked like because he knew that Jack would want to see it all. He is actually supposed to deliver Jack to a few circles higher. Across from where they're standing, Jack can see that there is like a staircase. Um, and it looks like at one point there was a bridge. And Verge says that there was a bridge at one point. Yes, he confirms it. But it fell before Verge's time. So the staircase on the other side, Verge tells Jack, actually leads out of hell and up, but doesn't say exactly where. So Jack asks if he can try and scale basically the rocks and go all the way around to get to the other side, which there's literally no way that anybody could ever do this. And Verge tells him, yeah, you can try. Many, many, many others have tried. No one has ever been successful, but why not? Go ahead. It's ultimately your decision. So Jack and Verge say their goodbyes. Jack gets probably, I would say, like maybe a quarter of the way across and ultimately loses his footing and falls. And um, the screen turns white. 
roll that beautiful bean footage of credits. So finally, we can ask ourselves, what does it all mean? So I guess the first thing I kind of want to touch on is the director specifically, like Lars von Trier and the film significance. It's really strange just years after, you know, Lars von Trier was shamed publicly, basically, at Cannes Film Festival for being a Nazi sympathizer. He then in this movie takes great time and great detail to discuss people like Pol Pot and Hitler and Mussolini. And I, I almost see this as a way of him trying to like clarify what maybe he was trying to say whenever, you know, he made the utter mistake that he did at the Cannes Film Festival he was at before he released this movie. Um, which is maybe that he was trying to say that he doesn't idolize these people necessarily, but they're the people that we remember, which I think there may be some truth to that. Again, I don't know what his intentions were, but just in terms of me watching the movie and seeing it for myself, like I think Jack, the character in the movie, wanted us to believe that he idolized those people and considered them icons. I don't think that Lars von Trier necessarily considered them icons in the good way, but considered them to be icons in the way that they're the people in history that we remember the most. I can't speak for other countries, but in the U.S., we spend a great deal of time talking about Hitler and Mussolini. I don't think we ever spoke about Pol Pot ever in my entire education. I actually, I'm certain that we didn't. Um, I didn't learn who that was until I was in college, which is embarrassing enough to say, but um, that's maybe what I think he was trying to do was like clarify or put a bandaid on that by saying that, yeah, he acknowledges that he made a mistake and maybe this is what he meant. Again, I don't know if he had the illest of intentions. Okay, I mean... I disagree with him. Like, I, I don't think that any of these, these evil people were misunderstood in any form or fashion. I think they speak loudly. It spoke loudly in their actions. But anyway, I think that this was his way of saying that he didn't forget about what he said and knows that other people didn't either. Now, what I do think is really interesting, though, is... The fact that he put all of those, all of those clips of those movies that are his in the house that Jack built. Namely, you know, Dogwood um, with Nicole Kidman, Dancer in the Dark with Bjork, um, and Antichrist with Willem Dafoe, and Melancholia with Kirsten Dunst. I mean, these are all movies that, they're, they're his movies. I mean, he wrote and directed them, um, but he chose to include them in this movie during a monologue and I think that maybe he was just saying look this is my art and you don't have to like my art and you don't have to appreciate my art but this is my art and I think a lot of the time actually I know for a fact because I've read it before a number of times that Lars von Trier makes movies for himself he does not make movies for the viewer in any form or fashion um, he makes movies because 
they're what he wants to make and what he wants to watch. But coincidentally enough, this movie received, even though like a half the audience got up and left during the movie, everyone that stayed, he received a standing ovation. So I don't know. I, I think that's kind of powerful. I mean, people really enjoyed this movie. And even though he was pretentious enough to put his own movies in there and call them, you know, the highest art, um, at least he's proud of the movies that he made. I think that's a good sign. So other than that, I think the other like big red herring is the ending. So why was Jack able to finally open that door that he'd never been able to open before? Okay, this is what I think. Um, I think that that door was never able to be opened before because Jack was dead. Like, he's dead now, so he is able to open it. And that's why when he does open it, he meets Verge. Because Verge is the person who's leading him through his journey, through hell, showing him where he needs to go, showing him how to get everywhere, you know, taking him on this, like, little house tour. Um, and this is the first time they meet. So... I think that even though we see the police officer soldering the metal door to enter the freezer, I think Jack was already dead by then. And um, when he died, I think is up for us to just kind of take into our own hands. I personally, me, think that he wasn't shot by the police officer when he killed SP. I, I don't think that. Um, I actually think that before we see the police officers trying to like enter the freezer, that he had been shot already before then. Um, we just didn't hear or see any of those shootings. And, um, that's a very Lars von Trier ending. Like he's not going to give you the answer that you want or even the answer that you need. Um, so I think that's what makes his movies really interesting, but that's what I think. So, you know, that, that initial announcement from the police to come out you know, he was able to unlock that door, go inside, meet Verge, build that house that he wanted to build so badly, and inevitably leave that realm and go into the realm of hell. That's what I think happened. I'm sure there are a number of other theories. I'm sure there are many, many, many answers. That's just what I think personally. So, um, I can also see how maybe it was all just a dream, because... If you have never read The Divine Comedy because you never felt like um, you needed to be pretentious enough to read it in your free time, don't worry, I have. Um, I never finished the third book, um, the book about heaven. I never finished that one because um, I found it to be the least interesting, but that's not to say that it wasn't good. Um, but in... The Divine Comedy, written by Dante. He is introduced at the very beginning. He is uh, dreaming, and he is saved by an attack in the forest um, by three creatures by poet Virgil. So Virge in our movie is Virgil from The Divine Comedy. This is his leader. So Dante was dreaming, about all these things. So I don't think it's necessarily like too crazy to think that maybe Jack was dreaming and he, that's how he met Verge. 
um, just to draw parallels between the two. But I think that makes it time for us to go into um, Inferno, which is the second book in the Divine Comedy. The first book is about purgatory. The second book is about hell. And because I think it is interesting to read and note, um, I would like to take you through all of the circles of hell um, that were written about. And I think it's important to discuss these. Um, If nothing else, for your own information, I don't really think I believe that there is a hell. Um, I don't think I believe there is a heaven. Neither does Jack. He says in the movie that heaven and hell are the same. Um... It's just all about your perception. So I would like to take you through a pretty brief walkthrough. And I say brief, it's really not, but it's brief if compared to the, um, the epic of the Divine Comedy itself of all the circles of hell. And this is coming directly from the historylists.org. And I can link that for you all so you can read it yourself. Um, They did a really great job of condensing each circle, and so I'm just going to read it directly from there for you. So the first circle is Limbo. This is resided by virtuous non-Christians and unbaptized pagans who are punished with eternity in an inferior form of heaven. They live in a castle with seven gates, which symbolize the seven virtues. Here, Dante sees many prominent people from classic Antiquity, such as Homer, Socrates, Aristotle, Hippocrates, and Julius Caesar. The Julius Caesar one really threw me for a loop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. The second circle is lust. Dante and Virgil find people who were overcome by lust in their earthly lives. They are being punished by being blown violently back and forth by strong winds, preventing them from finding peace and rest. Strong winds symbolize the restlessness of a person who is led by their desire for fleshly pleasures. Again, Dante sees many notable people from history and mythology, including Cleopatra, Tristan, Helen of Troy, and others who were adulterous during their lifetime. The third circle is for those with the sin of gluttony. These are overlooked by um, a worm monster, Severus. Sinners in this circle of hell are being punished by being forced to lie in a vile slush that is produced by a never-ending icy rain. The vile slush symbolizes personal degradation of one who overindulges in food, drink, and other worldly pleasures, while the inability to see others lying nearby represents their selfishness and coldness. Sometimes I feel like these uh, punishments don't really fit the crime. Yeah. Um, Fourth circle, greed. Dante and Virgil see the souls of people who are being punished for greed by being divided into two groups. Those who hoarded possessions and those who lavishly spent it jousting. They are using great weights as a weapon, pushing it with their chests, which symbolizes their selfish drive for fortune during their lifetime. The two groups are guarded by a character called Pluto, which is likely understood to be the ancient Greek ruler of the underworld. And they are so occupied by their actions that Virgil and Dante don't dare to even try to speak to them. 
And here Dante says he sees many clergymen, including cardinals and popes, which is a surprise to absolutely no one. Um, also, I'd like to add that I don't quite, and again, I'm not like a historian or anything. I'm not like an expert in um, Dante or Roman poetry or, or Florentine. He was Florentine. But the Pluto thing kind of threw me for a loop because Pluto is Greek, um, but Dante and Virgil are Roman. Um, I don't know. Interesting. Thought it was interesting. Fifth circle, those being punished for anger and wrath. This is where the wrathful and sullen are punished for their sins. They are transported on a boat, um, Dante and Virgil are, to see the furious fighting with each other on the surface of the river Styx and the sullen gurgling beneath the surface of the water. Again, the punishment reflects the type of sin committed during their lifetime. I disagree with that. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but while passing through, the poets are approached by Filippo Argenti, a prominent Florentine politician who confiscated Dante's property after his expulsion from Florence. What an encounter that must have been. The sixth circle is heresy. So when reaching the sixth circle, Dante and Virgil see heretics who are condemned to eternity in flaming tombs. Here, Dante talks with a couple of Florentines, but he also sees other notable historical figures, including the Greek philosopher Epicurus, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, and Pope Anastasius II. The latter, however, according to some modern scholars, condemned by Dante as a heretic by mistake, and instead argue that he probably meant the Byzantine Emperor Anastasius I. The seventh circle of hell is violence, and this is divided into three rings. The outer ring houses murderers and others who were violent to other people and property. Here, Dante sees Alexander the Great, Dionysus I of Syracuse, and many other notable historical and mythological figures, such as the Centaurus, sank into a river of boiling blood and fire. In the middle ring, the poet sees suicides, who have been turned into trees and bushes, which are fed upon by harpies. But he also sees here profligates chased and torn to pieces by dogs. In the inner ring are blasphemers and sodomites residing in a desert of burning sand and burning rain falling from the sky. In the eighth circle of hell, there are the fraudulent Dante and Virgil reach it on the back of Geryon, a flying monster with different natures, just like the fraudulent. This circle of hell is divided into ten stony ditches with bridges between them. In the first, Dante sees panderers and a seducer. In the second, he finds flatterers. After crossing the bridge to the third, he and Virgil see those who are guilty of simony. After crossing another bridge between the ditches, they find sorcerers and prophets, false prophets to be exact, in the fourth. In the fifth, there are housed corrupt politicians. In the sixth are hypocrites. And in the remaining four, Dante finds thieves, evil counselors and advisors, 
divisive individuals, and various falsifiers such as alchemists, perjurers, and counterfeits. In the last and ninth circle, which is divided into four rounds according to the seriousness of the sin, there is a frozen icy lake. So all the residents are frozen in the lake. Those who committed more severe sin are deeper within the ice. Each of the four rounds is named after an individual who personifies the sin. Thus, round one is named Cana after Cain who killed his brother Abel. Round two is named Antonora after Othenor of Troy who was Priam's counselor during the Trojan War. Round three is named Ptolemaea after Ptolemy. And round four is named Judecha after Judas, the apostle who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. So in the movie, we see that Virgil takes Jack down all the way to the ninth because Jack said he wanted to see and know everything. Um, Obviously, Lars von Trier portrayed that circle a little differently than um, Dante here saying that it was frozen and uh, or maybe not, because at the end of the movie, we see that Jack falls into a molten river. Um, but after he falls and leaves the frame, all of that turns to white. So maybe he did try and maybe he was also frozen in the in the lake. And maybe that's why the lake and the screen turned white. I don't know. Open for interpretation again. But Jack was intended to be delivered by Virgil to the seventh circle, which to remind you, he would have been in the outer ring, which was for murderers and others who were violent to other people or property. So he would have been BFFs with Alexander the Great. Um, I think this is a really interesting take. I think that it's really cool to see like this modern retelling. And of course it's not like solely about the the Inferno. It's not solely about the Divine Comedy, but because of its relationship to it, I think is incredible. I thought it was very well thought out. I, um, even though I've read the Divine Comedy myself, I didn't actually uh, really notice that that's what we were talking about until I was about halfway through the movie, and I was like, "Oh, got it. Very cool. Very great use of storytelling. I love this." So, Virgil. Great, great narrator, great person to take us through this story. And uh, again, I really appreciate HistoryList.org for coming up with this condensed version. If if you want to check it out, like I said, I'm going to link it for you. They actually have photos that are like paintings and drawings, and I think they're really interesting to depict like a visual representation of what these um, circles really look like. Last but not least, I think it's important to talk about how much focus we put on Jack's like mental state throughout the entire movie. I think it's really interesting that, you know, Verge really harps on him for his compulsions. Like he constantly points out he has compulsions, kind of taunts him for having OCD, kind of says like, oh, you are a narcissist and you are this and you are that and you're deviant and you're evil and all the things, you know, that Jack thinks make up what an icon is. I also think it's important to note that um, when Jack was talking about the dessert wines, when he was talking about frost, dehydration, and the noble rot, uh, I don't think he ever achieved the noble rot, which is supposed to be like the hardest one to achieve. 
But he definitely used the freezing because all of those bodies were kept in the fucking freezer. So he took the frozen approach to dehyd to, you know, um, fostering his grapes that he wanted to turn into wine. And so he froze those bodies and turned them into a house. I think it's very creative. I got to give it up to him. I think what was really unique about Jack is I got major Patrick Bateman, American Psycho vibes from him uh, in a way that is completely unrelated to the movie at all, right? But just the way that Jack treats women, like he will use like the Ted Bundy tactic of pretending to be injured to like get sympathy and he'll tell Simple that she's absolutely exquisitely beautiful and then turn around and say that she's stupid. I think it just really plays on Jack's like deep rooted hatred that he ultimately has for women, which he doesn't really touch on his mom at all in the movie. Um, only saying that he chose his career path based on like her recommendation, whether she forced that recommendation on him or not. I don't know. That's up for us again to decide, but, um, Jack ultimately he hates women like he fears love he fears that openness with another person and he is a self-proclaimed sociopath and psychopath so maybe he really isn't capable of feeling those feelings but he does show very extreme interest in some of these women so again very convoluted very interesting could be just like how Ted Bundy had like a primary partner but was still committing all these crimes on the side so I think it's a really interesting choice. Um, but that is where I'm going to wrap up with it for now because this could seriously go on for days. So thank you so much for listening. Again, my name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer. This is the Final Girl on 6th Avenue podcast. Thank you so, so, so much for tuning in week after week. Again, you can check me out and other podcasts and articles and blogs like me at morbidlybeautiful.com. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and give me a five-star review. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, you can reach me by email at finalgirlon6, that's the number six, at gmail.com, or you can get me on Instagram at finalgirlon6, that's the number six. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you guys next week.